Timothy Keller once said, Our Christian hope is that we're going to live with Christ in a new earth, where there is not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. Our society today, our government, our social and economic structures, our educational system, they all seem to be more fragmented and fractured than they have ever been before, at least in my lifetime. With deep political divisions, particularly in this upcoming election year, at times, as we've seen violent and destructive social unrest in a rapidly changing culture, strong opinions about social issues, foreign wars, rampant inflation, rising interest rates, and the economic uncertainty that follows all of that, at times it feels like the divide between large segments of our society is growing wider by the day. And look, for some of these questions, there aren't easy answers, which is one of the reasons we can't seem to find any common ground. It seems, it seems the divisiveness of our culture has never been deeper, again, at least in my lifetime. And, and to be honest, there are days when it feels like the differences are uh, irreconcilable. And yet, as fragmented and fractured as we seem to be, there's one uh, thing that we can all agree on. One thing that every one of us longs for. It is the common denominator among us, no matter your country, creed, or political persuasion. Whatever your background or current status is, what levels the playing field, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you believe, is our desperate need for hope. Every single human being needs hope. And of course, we look for hope in many different places. Some people look for hope in their income, their material wealth, uh, some in their physical health, some hope in what they can produce or achieve based on their own talents and abilities. Some people look for hope in human relationships, some hope in the systems of this world, education, government, business, and on and on it goes, right? At the end of the day, everyone wants to have hope in something, and most people want to hope in something beyond themselves. And yet, when the things that we place our hope in begin to fail, we become disquieted by fret and fear and uncertainty and anxiety. And when that happens on a large scale, as we've been experiencing the past few years in our culture, deep divisions are often created at the societal level. And of course, all of that gets manifested in a lot of terrible behavior that affects a lot of people. But do you know, most of the cynical bitter, even hurtful behavior that we're seeing across our culture today is not because people want to hate. It's because people want to hope. The problem is the very people and institutions they've placed their hope in have failed them. And so they lash out at other people and institutions out of hopeful, uh, hope, hopelessness, not hatefulness. So it underscores our desperate need for a hope that never fails and never fades, one that is unaffected by our flaws and failures, one that cannot be overturned by elections or overrun by angry mobs, a hope that is immune to every virus and disease that ravages the human body and plagues the human heart, a hope that does not rise and fall with financial markets, but rests assured in the unchanging nature of an almighty creator, a hope that transcends this world and anything it could ever do to us or for us. It's what the Apostle Paul referred to as our blessed hope in Titus 2.13, the hope that the author of Hebrews said anchors the soul in Hebrews 6.19, and the hope that David said his soul clings to in Psalm 63.8. 
And for the Christian, our hope has a name. It's a name that is above every other name, Philippians 2.9, a name that one day every other person we've ever placed our hope in will bow to and confess as Lord, Philippians 2.11. The only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. It's a name that even demons must obey, Luke 10.17. The name that signs and wonders are performed in, Acts 4.30. It's the name that is great in might, Jeremiah 10.6. The name through which we're justified, sanctified, and washed clean, First. Corinthians 6.11, the name that is a strong tower, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation 22.13, who was and is and is to come, Revelation 1.8. He is the uncreated, unequaled, unchanging King of kings and Lord of all lords, and he is the only hope for this world. His name is Jesus Christ. So listen, if your soul is not clinging to him, today, then what are you clinging to? What is your hope in? What are you counting on being there for you when the world isn't? Because the hope of Christ isn't just something you believe in. It's something you cling to. Whether you realize it or not, it's everything your soul longs for. And it can only be found in Jesus Christ, which is why he came to this earth in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and unbelievably profound way. He didn't come to bring a new religion to this world. He came to bring a new hope to this world. The only hope there is. And that's what this story is all about as we pause our series in Joshua to celebrate the first coming of the Christ, Emmanuel, our hope. This is really just an introduction today to the story which we're going to go through together in full in two weeks in our special Christmas service on the 24th. The story of a poor, young Jewish girl, a peasant from a place so insignificant that it led Nathanael to ask, can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 1.46. Yet out of that place, and more specifically out of the womb of that poor, seemingly insignificant girl without a future, came the greatest man the world has ever known. You understand, until that moment, Mary had very little to be hopeful for. And yet Mary's story is all of our story because despite the bleak outlook for her future, the difficulty of her circumstances and rejection from the world, God not only filled Mary with his hope, but he used her to deliver that hope to the rest of the world, which is exactly what he's been doing in and through his people ever since. So let's turn to this quite strange and yet stunningly beautiful story of hope, the hope of Christ come to earth in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and yet unbelievably profound way. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin with the first four verses. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So uh, Luke's intention from the beginning is to tell the story about the hope of Christ come to earth, and yet he also understands that if you cannot accept this first part of the story, as incredible as it is, then you'll never accept the rest of the story. So right from the start, he emphasizes to Theophilus and to everyone else who would ever read this, that what he's saying is absolutely reliable, accurate, 
and trustworthy, right? Because if this gospel is nothing more than folklore and fantastic stories, then again, we, we actually have nothing to put our hope in, which Luke is well aware of. And so if he's going to make these fantastic claims about Jesus, then he needs first to establish the validity of his testimony. And we know from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.14 that Luke was a physician, which in and of itself, of course, would suggest an attention to detail and the need for accuracy in his observation and reporting simply because of his vocation. We also know from that same chapter that Luke is a Gentile, which at first might seem like a strike against him, at least among the first century Jewish community. And yet the gospel, according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles or the book of Acts, which is actually, the, by the way, the second volume to Luke's gospel. In fact, those two books, scrolls, originally traveled around to the early churches as volume one and two of the same work, right? Luke and Acts. And so together they comprise about 28% of the New Testament, which means Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual author, which speaks to his significance and influence in the early church. Also worthy of mention here is the length of the prologue of his gospel account. The, The four verses we just read, this one long sentence and among first century writers in the Mediterranean world, to, to write a lengthy opening statement was typically how you would communicate to the reader right up front that this is a serious, well-researched and well-written piece of literature. On top of that, he explains in verse 2 that just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, referring to stories about Jesus. So Luke testifies that this information is coming directly from those with first-hand knowledge of the life of Christ, most certainly including those 12 apostles. And then in verse 3, when Luke says that he has followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, the word closely in that verse is the Greek word akribos. It's an adverb that means exactly or perfectly. So Luke's making his case here that this gospel has been recorded with painstaking detail. Uh, by the way, in support of that, we have a, a wealth of archaeological discovery over the past century, and I'll have time to go through that now, that verifies Luke's accuracy and attention to detail in his writing. And so as uh, N.T. Wright puts it, Luke is appealing to a wide base of evidence here by using not only oral accounts from those who were there with Jesus, but also the biographies and gospels which were already written, and as well, his own careful study of the people, places, and events described in the writing. And as a result, uh, this particular prologue by Luke is actually regarded by historians and theologians to be among the finest Greek writing of the entire first century, a true testament to his skill and credentials as a writer. The point for all of that is that there is strong and abundant historical, archaeological, and circumstantial evidence that this story is true, that it can be trusted, that the hope described in its pages is more than something we can believe in. It's something we can cling to. And so with that in mind, we're going to jump into the heart of the story now, verses 26 and 27, which is not long after the angel Gabriel appears before the priest Zechariah and foretells the birth of John the Baptist, whom we know now came to announce the arrival of the Christ. So Luke 1, 26 and 27, let's read it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the same angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth. Nazareth was a tough town. It was known for corruption, 
a really low moral standard among its people, and living there happened to be a young Jewish girl, a virgin named Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Jewish weddings came in three stages in the first century. There was an engagement, which was a formal agreement made by the fathers, and then betrothal, which was a ceremony where mutual promises were made to one another, and then finally the marriage, which was typically a year later, when the bridegroom would show up at an unexpected time for his bride. And so at this point, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, which was not a casual agreement. In fact, uh, to break a betrothal, the couple would have to go through the equivalent of a divorce in our modern society. So this is a firm obligation of faithfulness and commitment between Mary and Joseph and their families. Let's keep reading verses 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So an angel shows up and says to Mary, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And instead of being excited, encouraged, overjoyed, amazed, I don't know, right? Mary is greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Seriously, Mary? I mean, what is there to figure out? An angel shows up and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Hmm. Deeply troubling. I wonder what he means by that. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you first read it. But listen. When you consider the fact that in the first century, the lowest class of citizen there was, was a woman. In fact, the only class of citizen that is considered to be lower than a woman was a peasant woman. And the only class of citizen lower than a peasant woman was a peasant girl. And the only citizen lower than a peasant girl was a peasant girl from Nazareth. It makes a lot more sense when you consider that this young peasant girl from Nazareth who has grown up her entire life in a culture that has taught her that she is nearly worthless, not just a second-class citizen, but the last class of citizen, not someone to be taken seriously or regarded highly or listened to or valued or counted on to contribute anything great to the rest of society. It actually makes perfect sense that when an angel of the Lord shows up, are you kidding me? That in and of itself would be mind-boggling enough, but on top of that, he shows up to tell Mary, not her father, not her mother, not her fiance, not any one of the hundreds of other far more important people in her town or in her life. He shows up to tell her, Mary, that she is favored by God. It's no wonder she's greatly troubled. It's no wonder she's scared out of her wits because obviously this is the colossal mistake. You've got the wrong person. I can't be favored by God. I've never been favored by anyone in my entire life. I'm Mary, a nobody peasant girl from Nazareth. Who could this uh, be talking to me? What could it possibly mean? I mean, there's no way it means what it sounds like that God actually favors me. No way. And of course, the angel, seeing Mary shaken to her core, reassures her. This is no mistake at all. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And the reason this part of the story should hit you as hard today as it hit Mary is because he feels the exact same way about you. God favors you. He does. Look, God's disposition toward Mary doesn't just apply to Mary. Because what Gabriel is describing to Mary, the relationship between the hope that is in Christ and the one to whom that hope is given, beginning with Mary and then on to all people, regardless of race, age, gender, status, position, no matter who you are, no matter what's in your past, no matter what your upbringing was like, no matter what's going on in your life right now, when you receive Jesus Christ, you are favored by God. This is the hope for us in this story because Mary, who's about to receive inside of her the hope of the world, represents in many ways every believer and follower of Christ who would ever come after as we receive within ourselves the hope of the world when we submit our lives to and receive Jesus Christ, his spirit within us. Luke says, don't just take my word for it. Listen to Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, who has just come from the presence of the Lord, which means he's speaking with authority from the Lord, as he explains that everything we hope for has been provided for in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and unbelievably profound way through a young virgin peasant girl from Nazareth. Yet as strange as it is, the way that Jesus came to the earth, the way that he comes to us, this is the hope that our souls must cling to The reality, the truth that we must accept, that everything our hearts long for, everything our souls thirst for, everything our flesh faints for, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water, as David said when he was hiding from Saul in the wilderness, all of that is provided for when you have the Christ, the hope of the world living inside of you. This is the indescribable favor of God in your life. The fact that just as he chose Mary... He chose you, and he continues to choose you day after day, moment after moment, breath by breath. He chooses you over and over again, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. That's why it's a hope unlike anything in this world, because it's not dependent upon what we can do. It's dependent upon what he has already done. The Apostle Paul said it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. So just as Mary was chosen, you have been chosen to receive Christ as he dwells in you and you in him. This is the favor of God upon you. Of course, it brings with it all of the blessings of a life in abundance that you can only experience when you're in Christ. And so, although it sounds arrogant to some, and although it's becoming less and less popular for Christians to talk about the favor and blessing of God that only his children can experience, it's still true. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. In Acts 4, 12, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, there's salvation in no one else. 
For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He's talking about us. John 17.9, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Listen, the undeniable truth is there is indescribable favor and blessing that is exclusively available to believers and followers of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about a a false doctrine or a material prosperity gospel. I'm talking about the abundant life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And not only is it important for us to understand and admit that to ourselves, it's important that we explain that to the rest of the world Of course, with compassion and honesty and grace. Listen, even if it offends them, because the alternative is leading people to hell. So don't be afraid to tell people the truth, that no matter who they are, what they've done, where they come from, what their life is like right now, there is hope for them, real hope, lasting, eternal hope to be found in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. This is Mary's message to the world, whether she realized it at the time or not, which means it's our message to the world. And yet as good as that is, it gets even better because Gabriel not only tells Mary that God favors her, but he goes on to speak the greatest five words that any human being could ever hope to hear in their lifetime. The Lord is with you. He doesn't just favor you, but the God who created the heavens and the earth is actually right here with you, Mary. And again, it's as true as that was for Mary. If you're a child of God today, then it's just as true of you. Whether you're, uh, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing in your life today, no matter how alone you may feel right now, you need to know that God is actually with you. Just before he left earth, Jesus said to his disciples, that includes you and me, he said, I'm with you always. To the end of the age. Last time I checked, the end of the age hasn't come yet, which means he's with you. Even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you can't understand why he would be. He made a promise, and that promise is a hope that your soul can cling to. The hope that no matter what happens in your life, you are never, ever, ever, ever alone. You understand why? Because there are a lot of people, I'm talking about Christians, who think because of what they've done or how they're living or the mistakes they've made or are making that God is no longer with them. Listen, maybe if God was just beside you or over you or behind you or in front of you, maybe you could somehow try and distance yourself from him. But listen, when you're a child of God, the spirit of Christ isn't just beside you or over you or behind you or in front of you. He's inside of you. Which means wherever you go, he's right there with you to guide you, to lead you, to protect you, if need be, to stop you, right? To push you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, lift you up all along the way. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And what greater hope could we have than the knowledge that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe, the sovereign king over all kings, the one who loved us enough to send his own son to die for us, he is with you. His spirit is inside of you. I mean, honestly, I can't think of a better hope worth clinging to than that. In fact, without him, without him, we're utterly hopeless. The favor that we just talked about, the blessing of God, none of that exists 
if he's not with us. In Exodus 33, just after the Israelites turned away from God and worshipped the golden calf that Aaron made for them, God told Moses to lead the people from the wilderness into the promised land, but that he, God, would not go with them. To which Moses replies, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, hey God, if you're not with us, then we might as well stay out here in the wilderness with everyone else who's lost because there's no favor, there's no blessing, there's no life in abundance without the presence of God. It doesn't matter where we go or what we do or what we have or who we're with. If we don't have God, we don't have anything. If you're not with us, then we can only talk about you, not with you. We can only worship toward you, not in you. We can only know of you. We can't actually know you. It's exactly what it's like, by the way, for every follower of every other religion and belief system in this world. They may know all about their gods. They may worship toward their gods, and they can be meticulously schooled in the knowledge of their gods. But only Christians know their God. The God, the one and only true God, because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us, and he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit so that he is with us now and tomorrow and forever. I'm not going to apologize for the truth. I'm not going to suppress the truth in order to spare other people's feelings because we, you and I, are the harbingers of that truth. Just like Mary shared the hope of Christ with the world, it's our job to share the hope of Christ with this world. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being honest. We really should, we really should stop pretending to care about people when we're not even willing to tell them about the hope that we have in Christ. Don't tell me you love people. If you're not willing to speak the truth to them, that's not love. That's the opposite of love. If you believe God's word is true, then you know there are people going into eternity every day without God, without the hope that you and I have. So who's supposed to invite them into that relationship with him? We are. That's our job. It was one of the very last things that Jesus commanded. Final instructions. Go out into all the world and tell them everything that you've learned from me. That's how we love people. Not by doing everything we can to preserve their feelings. No, we love them by telling them the truth. By sharing the message of hope that we've been entrusted with. The hope that our souls cling to. It's the very message of Christmas. As the Apostle John said, he became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. It's the very reason that Moses said to God, if you're not with us, how will it be that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You understand that is the only thing that separates you and I from the rest of the world. The only thing that separates Christians from the rest of the world. It's the hope that we cling to, the hope that we have in the knowledge that no matter what, God is with us. Let's finish our story for today, verses 31 through 35. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and for his kingdom, uh, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? 
since I'm a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. As if it's not enough <laughs> for this poor village girl from a bad town to hear in one day that God favors you and that he's with you. But the angel goes on to tell her that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself will overshadow her and fill her with his power. Why? So that she can share the hope that she's being given with the rest of the world. And that's why if you're a believer and follower of Christ today, God's power is at work inside of you, just as it was with Mary, so that you will be able to share the hope that you have with others. And make no mistake about it, fighting for the lost is a battle. That's why you need his power working inside of you, because you can't fight that battle on your own. The good news is you don't have to, because it's absolutely nothing to do with your power or worthiness apart from Christ. So when I tell people about Jesus and they begin to list all the reasons why they could never be a Christian, my answer is, you know what, that's great. You're every bit as qualified to be a Christian as I am. Because it isn't about our worthiness. It isn't, it's about him and his grace toward us, even though we are woefully unworthy apart from him. You understand, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, not the hope of the worthy. If he came back for all those people who were worthy to receive him, no one would receive him. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, not the hope of the worthy apart from him, which means his grace is available to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And so as believers, as people who have freely received that gift of unmerited grace, how can we not tell others about it? How can we possibly keep that message to ourselves when the world is so desperately in need of a hope? A hope that it can cling to. The hope that you and I have been given. The favor of God that takes us in whatever condition we're in and transforms us by filling us and empowering us with His Spirit for a future and a hope that we, that we did not have and we do not deserve. That's why He came. That's why He humbled Himself and came as a baby to this earth to give us a hope worth clinging to. And so my prayer for this Christmas season is more than just us celebrating the hope that we have in Christ, as good as it is. My prayer is that we take this time to share it with those who have no hope to cling to. Those who are still lost, still wandering, still clinging to this world, that we'd introduce them to the hope that transcends this world and anything it could ever do for them. Tell them about Emmanuel who came in the most unpredictable unexpected, humiliating, and yet unbelievably profound way. My prayer is that we tell people about Jesus so that after tasting all this world has to offer, they would cling to something truly worth hoping in. My prayer for them and for us this Christmas season is for the cry of our hearts to be an echo of David's who said, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate Meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Let's pray.